Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution, and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. This is C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Thank you for making us a part of your day today. We're pleased to be joined by uh, three representatives from uh, several medical groups here in the community that you're going to want to learn a lot about. I've got uh, Dr. Alan Wong, who's the medical director of Salud, which is a new rehabilitation facility going in in the uh, Duluth-Johns Creek area. In Swanee. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, we've got Dr. Austin from the Gwinnett Medical Center Hospital Program, Hospital Medicine Program, sorry. So welcome to be here. Thank you. And then we have Dr. Kunjaman of Atlanta Heart Specialist, uh, interventional cardiologist, who's going to be able to tell us a little bit of what they do in their practice. So welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. We'll start with you, Dr. Wong. Tell me about Salud. You're, you're just getting started uh, in the community offering your rehabilitation services, but it's not necessarily a traditional uh, setup in terms of the way you're organized or who you're looking to bring into your uh, program. So tell us a little bit about how you got started and the concept and sure, so forth. Sure. We're a, a very unique company, uh, Salute. We're uh, out of, uh, you know, uh, Swanee, Georgia. This is our first facility. We have plans for other facilities around the United States coming up in, in the coming years. Um, I'm the uh, CEO and medical director of uh, the, the site right now. We have uh, about 64 private beds here in the facility, brand new. We just opened our doors on the 10th, uh, just uh, several days ago. And we are really functioning to work in partnership with a lot of hospitals, health systems, uh, other private practices to take post-acute care, transitional care type of patients. Uh, Our focus really here is to blend kind of a five-star hotel uh, experience Uh, with uh, outstanding clinical outcomes. So a lot of our patients will be coming, say, from hospitals uh, or post-surgical type of patients where they're going to make a a recovery. And so our goal is to have a quicker recovery. Our length of stay here, if you look at it compared to some of the other transitional care sites, should be much improved. We've got uh, state-of-the-art rehab at the facility. Uh, As customers uh, come in, we have a concierge there as well. Uh, all patients have wireless devices uh, as well, iPads. Uh, the nurses all use uh, mini iPads for charting. Uh, I am there full time, and so as a physician, we have two nurse practitioners that are there uh, seven days a week as well. So, in addition, we have other practitioners that come in from the community to see patients as well. So, we're really looking at uh, making some innovative changes to kind of a post-acute care model. So when we talk about transitional care as you're, as you're speaking of, would it, you know, I'm familiar with the term long-term acute care. Is it, is it in that vein or is it a little bit different space? Sure. You know, currently there's post-acute care encompasses a wide group of patients. And uh, some of those would be around LTAC, long-term acute care, that you see. Typically those patients uh, are uh, sicker and maybe on ventilators. Right. And, Uh, need about 30 days to recover uh, approximately. You have acute rehab where usually you're talking about a couple of of weeks of recovery from usually a mechanical type of uh, injury or a stroke and so forth. You've got really long-term care as well where patients stay virtually the rest of their lives and and really long-term. Our situation is such that we'll be able to care for 
higher acuity patient that may be in the hospital um, and some other patients that may fit into those other veins as well that we just described. The difference is uh, our facility is brand new. It's uh, 64 private beds there and we will have physicians, uh, you know, uh, a full-time physician there along with nurse practitioners, which typically when you get to long-term care, you don't have that. That that model usually utilizes community physicians that may be there for a part of the time. We do as well, but as medical director there, I'll be there to, uh, you know, enact, act on any problems and so forth much quicker. And when it comes to this sort of a facility uh, and you look at the overall, just the medical community and cost utilization sorts of elements, moving from the traditional inpatient acute care facility into a physician into a facility like this one uh, I would assume is probably a little bit more financially efficient for the overall health system for someone to transition into getting closer to being home but they still need some acute care and and so this would probably you know I would assume help some of that uh, you know for someone to be in your in your care versus in the hospital yeah you know uh, obviously it's still insurance based and so we take all insurances there uh, with Medicare uh, as well we don't have uh, Medicaid right now in that sense we also have private pay uh, options as well for patients for example that may have surgery done as an outpatient basis but uh, currently there's not necessarily a medical facility that they go to to recover at. So working with a lot of orthopedic surgeons, uh, plastic surgeons, for example, and other subspecialty surgeons. With the facility kind of being designed from an aesthetic perspective and the, you know, the feel, of, uh, if I'm a patient in the, in the facility, being kind of an upscale, you talk kind of almost like a hotel sort of sure. feeling. Is there is there thought that somehow that environment can help my outcome just because I feel a little bit more at home, I feel yeah. more comfortable, less sterile, if, if you will? Or, that, that's a great question. You know, we're called Salude, the uh, art of recovery, and so we're really geared at all the facets of recovery. Certainly if you look at hospitals now, and my background is from a hospital setting, mm-hmm. uh, patient satisfaction is part of the reimbursement structure now and really looked at as a quality indicator. So we feel that, uh, you know, eventually those type of measures will be coming to post-acute care as well. So we want to stay ahead of that. But more importantly, it's the right thing to do. You know, if patients um, are able to communicate better with physicians, their nurses have more uh, of their pain management needs met, um, have a quiet environment, a private environment to recover in, we certainly believe that that leads to better outcomes. And how long will I typically stay once I am, you know, a patient uh, in the care of Salute? Great question. Um, that's a little bit unclear at this point. It's going to depend on the patient base that we get. But in general, we believe patients would be there two to three weeks. Now, is there a, is there a yet another step in terms of rehabilitating toward my home environment that, that is in between salute and, and home, or do patients sometimes, will they, you know, in, in, in your model, would they be leaving straight sure. from your care and being able to, just like they would out of the hospital, would they just be able to go home now? That's a great question. You know, we feel that the patients that come should be able to recover to their baseline, and the goal would be for them to be able to walk out of the facility to get go home or to uh, an assisted living type of environment or with home health care kind of in place. That obviously is a goal for every patient that we have. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there particular folks that you're thinking are our are, are primary you know, group of patients that would benefit from being here, particular sure. set of people? Yeah, you know, I think that we're, 
you, we can, can focus on from a surgical perspective. You look at post-surgical type of patients, uh, orthopedic type of patients that may have knee problems or knee surgeries or hip replacements. Um, typically, those patients right now are not able to go to acute environment to recover. And in our structure, Medicare and other insurance companies would be able to pay for that background so that they could recover at our facility. Additionally, you know, you have uh, medical uh, patients as well. Uh, we feel that cardiac rehab, uh, pulmon pulmonary-type patients that need rehabilitation, uh, we believe are all uh, patients that would do well in our facility. However, it really looks at a case-by-case -case basis. Our goal is within two or three weeks to have patients that have a good baseline to be able to return to that near baseline by the time that they stay at our facility. I would presume with your offering of rehabilitation services that, that once I go home I may be able to continue on with some outpatient services or is it really focused on that patient while they're in your care, you know, as a patient, inpatient? Yeah, I think once they leave, uh, we don't have home health per se through our company, but they would be able to continue with home health services after they leave our facility. But just working with, like, physical therapy, that sort of uh, rehabilitation service, would they be doing any kind of outpatient sort of services continuing on with you once they, once they, once they you know, left the inpatient setting of Salute? We do have uh, inpatient uh, rehab, PT, right. physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. But once they leave, it would be done through our outpatient okay. arm of that. I got gotcha. you. Yes. And, you know, are the, you talk about several factors that impact someone's pace of recovery and their outcome and talk a little bit about you know what those are for you as a focus so meaning that um, you, the major factors that just that, that impact someone's ability to you know get back you know to their home care or to their home you know living and get back to their normal state from you know once they've gotten to you i have moved from the hospital sure. to you um, and there's some factors that uh, would, you know, you know, gotcha. we talked about their, their environment being one, obviously, and, and the rehabilitation services that you're providing, but anything else that you can think of that would help move them towards their, their best outcome quickly? Sure. You know, we at SLUD have about 5,000 square feet dedicated to rehabilitation, so with our physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, we've got state-of-the-art equipment there. There's an anti-gravity, ultra-G um, treadmill that is uh, phenomenal. It's developed by NASA. We have one of the few here in the area that they're able to use. We have other uh, biomedics and HER equipment that uses air, compressed air. So, um, so it's compressed air to actually do kind of, um, you know, uh, weight type of exercises. And so a lot of state-of-the-art uh, a gym that's there that's 5,000 square feet, um, we also have a chef that's there full-time, that we have a grab-and-go area that's unlike other long-term or transitional care facilities that they can get, and that comes up with unique menus every day, again, thinking that nutrition is a big part of the recovery process as well. Um, the patient rooms themselves are 330 square feet wow. each, so a lot of room. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of safety designs, I could go into detail, but... Um, the architectural firm that put this in worked very closely with the, our, the hospitality uh, group here to, to put this through with a lot of focus on patient uh, safety as well. So doors, for example, that don't swing out into the hallway, uh, doors into the, into the bathroom area that are sliding doors, not mm -hmm. opening, uh, showers, individual showers, private showers that you don't step in anything. They're tiled and that you walk into. So 
a lot of those safety type of pieces. Additionally, the whole environment there is wireless. So as I said, when patients come in, they have a 47-inch TV in their room. They also are able to have use of an iPad uh, there as well that uh, connects with us as well. uh, Families can use that as well. We have a concierge here that kind of helps them with different uh, things to do. And um, we have in-house channels that will be developed as well. Uh, On top of that, as I said before, unlike most facilities uh, that are transitional care, we will have two nurse practitioners that will be there, you know, seven days a week. Additionally, myself, they're full-time. So from a clinical outcomes perspective, um, things are enacted upon much quicker that need to to have a medical director's uh, oversight. It sounds like your background in hospital-based medicine really comes into play with some of the model that you're employing here. Mm. Um, you know, when when you talk about the, the space of, of the rooms, uh, I would assume that there's some measure of accommodation to have family be able to be there with them, and, and obviously with that kind of space, it's a little bit more comfortable for people to be visiting them and be there with them while they're doing their care. Absolutely. We invite families to participate, and, you know, our goal is within 24 to 48 hours to have individualized family meetings and to kind of continue that through our process. The, the facility itself, uh, and we would love all the listeners here to come by for a visit and to, to see it yourself. It's built on 15 acres. We're only using five of those acres. So to give you an idea, it's a very wooded area. There's a lot of trails and paths back in the, on the backside and the front side. It's decorated by art uh, from uh, some Swanee artists, some very large metal sculptures are beautiful. So all of that is kind of part of this process uh, to invite families to participate in the care of their loved ones. That's outstanding. We're, we're meeting with uh, Dr. Wong of Salud, the new uh, upscale rehabilitation and, and kind of a acute transitional facility for patients who have moved out of the hospital but not quite ready to go home yet. Um, any, any the how, tell me about you know how the recent changes in the law you know in terms of the healthcare law has that affected your your model in some way or how do you fit into you know the new changes that have come down as it relates to the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, you know I think uh, it's a moving target. I mean I think uh, we're in a time now where health the healthcare environment's changing quickly, and it'll continue to change. And I think so. A lot of things we're looking at is into the future. We really believe that this type of a model will become the um, preferred model that's out there based on the payment systems. And so right now there's a lot of partnership. I, I haven't been in the hospital world. I know that the hospitals have keyed on a lot of metrics related to readmission rates, right. mortality, um, length of stay, uh, et cetera, patient satisfaction. And so we're trying to partner. Uh, we're strategically located where – we're near several hospitals in the area, Emory Johns Creek, Gwinnett um, Medical Center, Health System, um, North Fulton Hospital, Northside Forsyth Hospital, Northeast Georgia, but to partner with the health systems. Each one, they have different challenges, but we want to be there as a partner to help their metrics as well. So if it's, for example, readmission, um, you know, the government right now uh is going toward a system where they're not going to pay you each time that you go back in the hospital. And that's mm-hmm. the right thing. If you got your tire fixed at a tire shop and it got flat again, you shouldn't have to pay each time that you come in. It should be based on uh, beautiful and wonderful outcomes. And so that's where once a patient leaves the hospital, we feel that it's going to be our partnership and ability to, to keep that patient from going back in, to help with everything that the physicians at the hospital have wanted to do and then to safely 
transition that patient to their outpatient provider so that they don't need to go back in. So a lot of the, these rules, laws, regulations, and, and reimbursement sh- system is going to continue to change, I think, in the next 20 years or more. But uh, we feel that uh, this model will be able to, to fit into that. You know, where they're talking about, um, you, you mentioned the fact that some of the reimbursement, you know, changes that will be coming into play will be based a lot on patient outcomes going forward and some of that uh, being measured by uh, patient satisfaction and I presume some measure of, you know, readmission. Are they readmitted if they were readmitted? How long was it before they came back in? Um, you know, I'm curious, how how does the, the patient satisfaction element of it come into play in that? Or is it, you know, based purely on, uh, like, the surveys that patients would complete on their, on their exit? How do we how did that how did they measure that to kind of determine you know how it would fit into you know that portion of sure outcomes you know in the post-acute care environment right now that's something that their surveys done ours are all internal it's not something that's necessarily put on at a large scale from a uh, kind of a compliance organization hospitals are different in health systems obviously that's part of how they get uh, reimbursed now with the value-based purchasing right and so a lot of that is keyed in there. And a lot of the metrics they look at around that communication, communication with physicians, nurses, pain control, a quiet environment, different things uh, to that extent. Um, so all of that will be coming to the post-acute care world. And we certainly have patient satisfaction surveys now. But I think that's very important because we're starting to see some studies that tie patient satisfaction to outcomes mm-hmm. and I think more of that uh, will be coming out uh, forthcoming and so I think it's going to be very in- important you know if the patients understands how their care is being delivered and is happy with that type of care certainly it, it seems like other quality metrics would be tied to that too and they would be able to recover quicker and uh, in a safer situation you know based on what i've been learning about uh, your 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 model as you know we were preparing for the show it, it you know it sounds like it's you know salute is fairly unique in terms of your your focus on you know the aesthetic piece of the, you know the uh, the puzzle for the patient and and what their environment feels like so i mean i would presume that you know that uniqueness of yours would kind of make it a little bit more possible for hospitals in the area to potentially see you as a you know a partner you know more than you know somebody that would may maybe you know not so much a competitor if you will but a place that that would be good for them to link up with so that patients can transition out of acute care so they can really focus on that maximize their efficiency as an organization and still have those great outcomes that keep the patient from coming back into the hospital quickly would seem to be yeah, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head there. I think we, we, we're not competing with any of the healthcare entities that are out there at present. We really fill a unique niche there and feel that we can partner. Every hospital has different areas that we could help with. If it's around readmissions, for example, we can work on that. If it's heart failure type of patients or cardiac rehab or orthopedic type patients, you know, everybody, every system may have a subset where they feel that they need to improve their transitional care and that's where we really want to open up and and help help all the partners we have do you have some tips for somebody who's you know they're having surgery they're going to be having to recover and maybe do some rehabilitation along the way to maximize their outcome do you have some best advice for that type of patient yeah i think uh, a know what your insurance is going to cover and maximize that amount and so there are facilities that they could use if if they're not able to recover in a hospital based on that 
and you know also look at the facilities you're going to be going to you know many times your physicians your surgeons may practice at multiple hospitals um, know what their statistics are there's publicly reported statistics on quality now whether it's readmissions mortality um, patient satisfaction all that is accessible on the web now and other uh, metrics as well so know those metrics and be a smart consumer and I would say visit again all of the facilities you're going to be at talk with the uh, clinical leads at the hospital and uh, also the administration there to make sure that um, what they see as a recovery process is good for you and I think as you look at the facilities you'll know and have a good gut feeling if this is a good fit for you. Now, it, you, you mentioned some resources on the Internet. I'm, I'm sure people are familiar with uh, the, the various rating, you know, vitals.com and stuff like that, but I have a feeling you're talking about something else, that would, another resource that might have a little bit more specific data outside of someone who just got mad at a doctor and they just want to say it on the Internet, you know, a place that somebody can go to evaluate whether it's a hospital or potentially a surgeon that has more, I guess, if you will, objective data that, uh, that is probably a little bit more accurate in terms of what their outcomes tend to be. Is there a resource? that you can mention? There, there is, and I just don't remember the exact name of uh, the websites. Is there a type of maybe a keyword or something like that that would be useful outside of just looking up a doctor's name, for example? Go ahead, Dr. Austin. You, you had a comment. Um, well, there's several private organizations like Health Grades is a big one that um, you can find on the Internet easily. There are government websites as well that are coming. Uh, hospital Compare, uh, I think, uh, .gov is... Um, is an is an additional one, but um, and there's there's multiple other private companies um, that that do um, uh, post post uh, a different um, statistics and um, compare doctors and have uh, information on outcomes and such. They're still in their infancy in many cases. So but you think if I were up. to do search for like. Um you know, outcomes, hospital outcome statistics or physician outcome statistics or something like that that might get me close to that, you think? I think so. And the, the hospitalcompare.gov was the one I was thinking about. I just couldn't, but that's the one that's widely used. Yeah, you know, I, I think that that's useful for people to know about because, I, you know, I know for me it's it's a useful piece of information because I really wasn't aware of it and all I've ever seen is just, you know, what I talked about, the, the vitals.com and those type of things that are more or less a gripe fest that I've seen rather than objective data reporting on, you know, it really uh, excludes the the positive outcomes that somebody has. So, you know, we all know that everybody's going to have uh, either a personality conflict or whatever it may be that causes me to think less of my interaction with a particular physician. So therefore, I'm probably going to go talk about it someplace, particularly if I don't have to really be accountable for what I say. So, you know, that kind of objective data source, I think, is very useful for somebody to be able to explore um, before they go and get um, care someplace. Um, you know, with you and your, you know, organization, I mean, you know, I'm always you know, impressed by how fast our time goes. So before we jump off and start talking to some of our other guests, do you have some parting thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listener, whether it may be a physician in the community that's listening in today or perhaps a patient whose loved one or themselves is getting ready to, you know, go in for, to the hospital. They're going to have a procedure that's going to maybe potentially lead them to uh, need your kind of service. What would you, you know, leave them with? Yeah, I... We would love to have uh, as many of our listeners come by the facility, and I would love to personally tour uh, each and every person uh, there because I think once you see the facility and understand our philosophy, our mission, kind of what we've got there, 
you'll understand that we're, we take a holistic approach, uh, Salud does, to your recovery process. Mm-hmm. And we believe that half of that, at least, is related to your own patient experience, and that's very important. And the other half or more is related to the uh, clinical outcomes that you're going to receive. So we believe that um, going to a facility that really is staffed appropriately or even overly staffed to that extent, you know, to have... <laughs> That's a unique situation yeah. in and of itself, I think. Yeah, and if you look at our situation, we, we have uh, 15 to 1 nursing staffing, which is about uh, two to three times better. The industry norm is about 30 or 40 to 1 yeah. for this type of transitional care. So we believe that having that type of a, a robust staffing model along with two nurse practitioners and a full-time physician, are really key. I mean, the facility looks beautiful, and I think when people come see it, they'll feel that it's second to none. But putting the clinical outcomes and our clinical focus on that is huge. And I'm there to bring my 15 years of experience in hospitals and healthcare settings into Salud and into a new model of care, and for us to then propagate this across the country. Well, it's really exciting to to learn about what you're doing here with Salute, I would presume that the, the physicians in the community whose patients would be ending up uh, gaining benefit from being here are probably accepting you with some measure of enthusiasm, particularly once they see the facility and, and uh, learn a little bit about more how you're staffed and, and all that. So I would imagine you're probably being welcomed into the community, it would seem. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you for taking some time out of your busy day to be here and, and share with us. I'm, I'm going to try to get our uh, other guests on, on here to, to talk about what they're doing. I'll, I'll just jump over to you, Dr. Austin. T- tell me uh, a little bit about the, the hospital medicine program. Uh, and I, I'm sure there's um, folks out there that may have heard of hospitalists before. Um, and obviously the specialty has been around for a while, but obviously in the last five, ten years or so, the the specialty has really taken off. It's obviously got a great deal of benefit both to the patient that you're caring for, obviously, first and foremost. But, again, uh, there's another benefit to just the physicians in the community as well who um, can partner with you in the care of their patients while they're in the hospital. So tell me a little bit about hospital medicine, and, and uh, we'll kind of jump in and, and talk a little bit more how, how that's good for the patient. Um, well, hospital medicine um, probably started in the mid-'90s around and um, as a as a recognized specialty, there were always, um, I guess, generalist physicians, uh, predominantly internal medicine physicians, um, as well as some family practitioners, and now expanding to pediatrics and other areas, who um, devoted a substantial portion of their time to hospital care. Um, as the uh, systems have evolved, um, you're starting to see um, programs where there are full-time physicians just 24-7 acting kind of as captains of the ship, kind of as a patient's primary care physician uh, within the hospital um, and pretty much available to physicians and the patients and their families um, around the clock. Um, And there's some obvious advantages to that in that it's uh, becoming more and more difficult to maintain uh, a practice uh, and provide the service to an outpatient group and simultaneously be available to someone who might be unstable in the hospital. Yeah. It's also very difficult to learn the, ver- the different systems and become familiar with what different subspecialists do, um, who's the best person to get um, <clears throat> to um, come and see a patient for a given problem in your system, what's the local expertise. Um, so we, we think we've come to um, learn that, and uh, most studies are showing that it does uh, improve 
outcomes and satisfaction. Our own group started in 1999. It's probably one of the oldest and stablest groups in the country, I would think. Uh, almost very, very little turnover. Most, almost all of our doctors are experienced and have been in the system for many years, which is um, becoming more the norm in hospital medicine, but for a long time it was kind of a transitional career. Um, and I think there's a lot of, uh, we've, we've reaped a lot of benefits from that. Um, we're now up to, we started with five physicians. Um, we're up to uh, 30, going on 32 docs with um, six nurse practitioners. And um, they, because of their familiarity with the system and being around for so long, I think that they uh, really are efficient and can bring the best of the system to help the patient and um, the patient's physician as well. Now, at what point do you become engaged with a patient once they're in the hospital? Do you start, you know, do you, you know, engage with them in the emergency department? Or is it just when we determine this is a person who is definitely needing to be admitted, the ER physician has said we need to admit this patient to a service, and now that's when you jump on? Or do you collaborate with those physicians kind of discussing whether or not hospitalization is appropriate for this particular patient? Well, it's really a, a team approach even to that. Um, so in general, the majority of our admissions in our particular practice come through the emergency room, although some are referred directly from a primary care physician. Um, and the majority of those admissions are fairly obvious, like we come down and we realize that this patient's pretty sick, and uh, to stabilize them and to um, start them on <clears throat> their course towards healing, um, they're going to have to be hospitalized. Um, there are other patients where there are questions that go to the individual patient. Some patients do not want to be hospitalized or there are multiple options available to them. In some cases, we might disagree um, with the emergency room physician. Um, and and we, we really do tend to try to make that a team decision. That involves us, the patient, and the patient's emergency room physician, and oftentimes other subspecialists and um, the primary care physician to kind of a tailor a care plan plan to um, that patient that works for them. With your role in the hospital, where you're kind of the primary leader, once I am admitted, um, you know, obviously my other specialists that see me, you know, may potentially be coming to see me, particularly if I'm I've got surgery or something like that. Obviously, they're going to run and follow me for that. But you're going to take over managing, for example, my diabetes and my blood pressure and those types of uh, other comorbidities or, or illnesses, if you will, that I'm bringing with me, you're going to help manage those and, and maximize them. Because sometimes when I'm in the hospital and I've got some other stressors going on, you know, things that can change my metabolic demands and so forth, I would imagine that having somebody right there who can maybe be aware of all of those things that are going on and, and maximize, you know, just the type of orders and the, the treatments that you're offering would be a better situation than somebody who's not necessarily as tied in as you would be interacting so closely with the other specialists. It would seem that, that you're able to really maximize that patient's outcome by being right there and you're aware of all of the elements going on with them right now. Um, and we, we really do try to do that. I mean, that is that is our goal. And um, I think over time we become somewhat ex experts in how the critical or acute illness affects a lot of those comorbidities. Um, in, in many cases, like, for example, uh, uh, patients who have cardiac surgery, we have a very um, large and expanding cardiac surgery program. The stress of the surgery will often throw a lot of those areas into um, imbalance, whereas before someone was well-controlled or right. maybe not even a diabetic, their sugars may fly through the roof. So 
uh, working together. We've developed protocols. Um, the other area that um, that impacts is that we have to be experts in uh, communication. We have to be able to talk to everybody. That's probably the most important thing we do. Um, in planning care, you have to talk to the patient, and you often have to talk to multiple subspecialists. Mm -hmm. The benefits of subspecialty and of, of having hospitalists and other physicians is a certain degree of uh, expertise and also immediacy that they can uh, come and see you right away. Um, the disadvantage is fragmentation of care, and that's kind of the, the, the bogeyman that we have to fight, and um, we, we have to communicate uh, both with the subspecialists to make sure we're not stepping on each other's toes and um, that one is not stepping on the other one's toes <laughs> or doing something that could unintentionally harm the patient, and also talk to the patient to make sure that what we're doing is in line with their values and plans. Um, you know, some patients at a certain point don't want uh, the, the most aggressive care we can offer, and we have to be aware of that too. Does it take... Um, I would imagine that some physician or some patients are you know used to Dr. Smith is my doctor and he manages my diabetes or he manages my blood pressure medication and here you know Dr. Austin's going to be taking over that for me do you, do you find some educational opportunities there where you're you know helping the patient understand we're right here with you in the hospital and we'll be kind of taking over that part of things for you while you're here does that kind of um, do you have patients that kind of wonder why they don't have their their regular physician necessarily seeing them while they're in the hospital Oh, absolutely, and and it's it is really important to um, let the patients know that this is a team, and it really is. I mean, healthcare in the future to get good healthcare, you need a team. It can't just be one doc who's you know kind of like a Marcus Welby who comes in, does surgery, then delivers a baby, then does you know nursing home care. <laughs> it's just too complicated these yeah. days. But patients do feel that way, and you have to let them know that hey, I talked to your cardiologist, and I'm sending a note to your regular doctor. Right. And it's critical that the ball doesn't get dropped along the way. And, and frankly, you know, I like a lot of what um, uh, Dr. Wong is talking about because you know we have to have people to pass the ball to, um, uh, and it's it's just critical that these pieces of information um, don't get dropped. One thing I would add to um, what um, Alan um, was talking about as far as a patient getting involved in their own care and recovery is um, we, I really like a patient who's an active partner. Like I feel really good if, let's say, a patient was going to salute or another facility that I've communicated with them, hey, this is the things that I'm worried could potentially happen to this patient. Because when the patient leaves the hospital, and, and believe me, our product is a good discharge. Mm -hmm. Our product in the end is a patient who is up to the maximal functional status and well-being that they can possibly be for them. But human beings are complicated systems, and, and you know there's always a possibility of something going wrong or a ball getting dropped or, or a test that needs to be checked being missed. And, and that's why the communication is key, but the patient being a partner is also key. So I'm super happy when a patient says to me, so well, what about my diet? Should I watch out for salt? What about this? What about that? And, and, um, you know, and, and making sure that they also know if there's a test that's still hanging out there. It was done, but it needs to be repeated in six months. Uh, sometimes it's a by-the-way thing, but we just want to make sure that those things don't get dropped. So communication and building robust systems for that you know, is becoming more and more an important part of healthcare. Now, I would imagine that it probably is pretty encouraging when you have somebody that's actually engaged in what do I have to do, what's my homework here. I, I think, uh, I know in our own practice we see this where 
uh, a lot of folks, and maybe it's born out of just our fast food cu- culture these days where I go and I get, you know, I'm going to this specialist and they're going to fix me um, and not realizing that, uh, oh, I've got to do some things. I've got to eat right. I've got to offload different whatever the particular measure may be that the patient has to do when they're not in front of you. Um, so when you have somebody like that, I would presume that that's probably going to hasten their their discharge and, and, and get them to that maximal outcome, you know, a little bit more quickly since they're going to be actively engaged. Um, I was curious when, when it relates to your, you know, in hospital medicine, um, now that it's been, uh, especially obviously you talked about the fact that it's been recognized for a, a little while and obviously now there's doctors actually training to, to provide this type of care. Have there been any kind of studies at all that show where, where those types of programs are in play that, you know, we were talking about re-emission rates, for example, or, you know, pace the discharge, for example. Have, has any, you know, it, it may not have been, but I was just curious, has there been some data out there that shows that when there's a practice like yours in place that, that my outcome as a patient is probably going to be better and probably achieved a little bit more quickly? Um, the good, there are some studies that go to quality, although there's, there's not as many as you would think, but there are, there's, Studies do seem to show that there's a benefit. Certainly there are studies showing that the worst possible thing that can happen to you is to be admitted by a subspecialist who's not in the area that your problem is in. So, for example, in the old, day, old days, you used to sometimes have a neurologist admitting somebody for a pneumonia. Um, and that tends not to work out too well. So there have been definite improvements. There's certainly also been improvements in uh, length of stay and cost of care um, and, um, and in patient satisfaction. Um, as far as readmissions go, there are programs. There's a, uh, a group called the Society of Hospital Medicine, of which um, Alan uh, was actually our local um, chapter head. And um, there's a project through that called Boost that is one of the premier projects in trying to reduce readmission rates. Um, the truth is, is that we really have to continue to work on um, boosting our communication because the hospital piece is only one piece. And like I said, this is really a team project, so the team is going to involve, um, the, you know, for a hospitalized patient, the hospital physician, the, um, uh, the outpatient physicians, um, all the various specialties which may be specialists which may be involved in a patient's care. Um, in some cases, uh, post-acute physicians like Alan, um, and, and we, in order to really reduce readmission rates and produce a good outcome, we're going to have to start organizing ourselves more into um, networks that provide that type of care. Um, So we can only do so much. The other thing that we have to watch out for, and and one of the things that hospital medicine has kind of come under the guns for, is cost shifting. So for example, we have to be careful that when we discharge a patient from the hospital, we're not discharging them more quickly and reducing hospital costs, but increasing costs, total health care costs once they get out of the hospital. And that's really the where we're moving to now is looking at total health um you know these bundled readmissions and 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 looking at long-term health and i know our um our area is uh, gwinnett medical center is now starting to work on what's called a clinically integrated network where we're all going to try to work together to produce measurable quality outcomes that um, go beyond just the hospital but include the hospital I would presume that some of the structures of the different reimbursement systems, you know, obviously far too complex to really start talking about here since they can, you know, be pretty dramatic. But I would presume that some of them, when you talk about like DRGs, for example, that um, for this particular type of illness or this particular type of surgery, you know, that this is what your reimbursement is. And then if we get you 
better and home in less time than then technically that's better for the hospital system from a financial perspective. So I presume that that's encouraged along the way, maybe trying to really hasten the patient out, and that probably kind of contributes somewhat to what you were just talking about, and that is making sure that we're not just looking at financial efficiency as an organization, but we're truly saying you're definitely ready to go home or to a facility like Salud, and, and that's definitely the best outcome thing for you. And if we're doing everything right, then obviously the financial, you know, efficiencies of the hospital are, are, are looked after. So yeah, I would think that that just kind of ties in that now they're having to look at is that patient coming back, um, you know, to be readmitted again relatively soon, probably sooner than we would have anticipated, if at all. Um, or, you know, did they, did they, you know, leave the hospital, you know, maybe precipitously and then end up having, a, you know, a worse outcome because we did it a little too quickly. So I guess having a, a system in place like a in-hospital-based physician practice that you're going to be able to kind of manage that a little bit more closely and, and truly make a good educated choice when the patient's getting ready to go home. Now, when it, when it comes to that, that phase of things, patient's been in the hospital and you've been managing their care and now they're nearing the time when they will be going either leaving their acute situation, whether it's home or to a salute or some other transitional phase, are you, you know, and your colleagues in the group, you know, how key are you in terms of saying that? Or is it, if I came in for orthopedic surgery, is it you and the orthopedist that are discussing their discharge or is it more of the subspecialist per se that's saying, I think they're ready to go? How does that flow when it comes to my care and when I'm ready to go out of the hospital and on to the next step for me? And again, that's, a, again, it's something that you tailor to the individual patient. So in some patients who are very simple, like if, if you came in and you had a simple surgical procedure with very few comorbidities, it's easy. Um, I would talk to you. I'd say, hey, everything looks great on paper. Um, how do you feel? And as long as you don't tell me something I can't tell by looking at the paper, and, um, you know, then we can go ahead and plan your discharge. In more complex patients, again, uh, medicine's more and more, it's a team sport. So mm -hmm. the uh, patient you're talking about who maybe uh, came in, say, with a hip fracture but also had congestive heart failure and diabetes and many other problems, um, it, it could involve a multitude of different people making that decision together. So at a minimum, it would be, um, my, uh, in that case, probably um, the hospital uh, doctor or the hospitalist, an orthopedic surgeon, um, and, and usually they're, they're pretty simple. They just say, I put the pin in, and now you can bear weight as tolerated. Um, there may be other subspecialists, and there may be physical therapists as well. The, the, we, we really depend on our physical and occupational therapists to evaluate a patient and to say, um, this patient um, is okay at home with home health, physical therapy, or this patient needs post-acute rehab. Um, and then we have to kind of bundle that together with other needs and the patient's home situation to decide on the best place to, uh, to, for them to go. And then, of course, the patient has to agree. They don't always agree with what we say, that where we say they should right. go. I'm sure. Yeah, some people just say, I don't care. I'm taking grandma home. And it's like, are you sure? But, um, yeah, you know, sure because it would be difficult. very difficult for you to manage all that at home. Um, but, but we really do rely on that. I mean, it would be presumptuous of me to say I can look at a patient and say, you know, your bedroom is on the second floor and you've just had your hip pinned. And on top of that, I know you're kind of short of breath and use a little oxygen. And, um, uh, you know, I, but I, I feel like you can walk up those stairs. I'd much rather talk to my physical therapist and say, you know, can this patient walk upstairs? Where's their bedroom? Where's their bathroom? What are they capable of doing that, doing, combining that with, you know, my knowledge of how stable their comorbidities are 
and talking to my orthopedist colleague about wh- where their hip is and what they can do, and then we can make a decision together on the best place. So, yeah, that's become a big science, and we have um, multidisciplinary rounds every day where we get all these people together at once uh, to talk about those patients. And, um, you know, in the hospital today, from day one, as soon as, you, as soon as you're becoming stable, we're starting to figure out, you know, where is it likely you're going to end up needing to go? Is it going to be home? Is it going to be home with additional support, or is it going to be some other level of care from uh, LTAC to subacute to, you know, a, a different level of uh, living like, a, uh, like an assisted living um, facility? We've been talking with Dr. Austin from Gwinnett Medical Center's hospital-based medicine practice, and I would presume that, you know, just like what you were talking about as you collaborate with the team, you probably work very closely with uh, the case management team and, 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 you know, doing just that, planning where is the patient going to go, when, when do we anticipate that happening. So I imagine you are working hand-in-hand with those folks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's key. We, we need them to come up with what's available to a patient um, you know, as, as Alan said, you know, some of it depends on your insurance. Not every option is open to every patient. We'd like it. You know, we would love it. We, we really want the best for our patients. Almost every doctor I know wants the best for their patients. They don't want them coming back. They want to see them at the movie theater fully, you know, uh, having fun. Um, so we, we, we really rely on the case management managers for their expertise and in helping us to bring it all together. And, again, we, we do have to start planning from day one. And in the end, it's really good for the patient. I mean, some patients or, or, or some uh, lay people and, and even, um, uh, you know, very uh, intelligent and well uh, and knowledgeable people feel like, well, the, maybe the best place is to be the most intensive place. And um, oftentimes that's not true. I mean, hospitals are germy. They're not set up for doing uh, intensive rehab. Um, you know, we're trying to cut medical errors. We have big programs to reduce infections and other things like that. But, um, you know, if, if, if I was in the hospital with a moderate to minor illness, the last place I'd want to be in is the ICU around the sickest patients in a place where you really can't get up and walk around and do rehab and, you know, would end up in bed. So, you know, when, when it's time to get to the proper level of care, it is a complex decision. There's a lot of variables, but we do have to work with our case managers from day one to make sure that the patient has the best option available to them when it is time to move to a different level of care. I think that something you were saying a moment ago is is worth going back to, uh, you know, and I, I think that it may surprise, uh, you know, particularly a patient um, when they realize just all the different elements to their to their situation that guide your decisions about their care. And that is, I think a lot of people, you know, as a patient would think you're looking at their labs and you're looking at their situation right here in the hospital. But, you, you, you know, something you just talked about was describing, you know, what is their home situation? Do they have, you know, stairs going into the house? Do they have stairs in the house? What's their, what's their transportation situation? Do they have any kind of support in the home? Different things like that that are maybe beyond the scope of the hospital, uh, maybe beyond the scope of this situation that they're facing in this very moment. But I don't know that a lot of people realize the, the level to which you pay attention to their overall milieu, if you will, in terms of what's their environment like that they're living and working in and, and as you try to make your decisions. It's not just what's their lab look like and what's their leg look like or whatever the situation may be. So I think that that was good that you mentioned that just just to illustrate how 
um, you know, important the decisions are for you that you make. Do they go home or do they go to salute, for example? So that was great for you to point that out. Before we jump off and, and meet Dr. Kunjerman, um, do you have some points or, or comments maybe that, you know, that you would like to leave the, the listener with, um, you know, whether, whatever that may be as far as why is it great to be at Gwinnett Medical Center and part of your practice or just, you know, a thought in general that you'd like to leave the audience with today? Um, well, I guess I, I'll take any opportunity to um, to, to do a shout out to Gwinnett because I think that they're a, they're a great organization. I think they have um, great um, devotion to teamwork. I think um, the the docs are great, but um, equally or even more important, the nurses, the physical therapists, the respiratory therapists, um, all work together as a team. Uh, to, to produce the best outcome, and I think we, we look hard at those areas like patient preference, um, what's, what's available to the patient. Um, I did have one last comment for um, uh, Alan, and that's like, I just can't get this idea of an anti-gravity treadmill out of my head. I wanted I, to know more I gotta about get that out myself. There. I was like, tell me about how that works. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got to try that. I, I don't know if I can get a chance, but I want to get on the anti-gravity treadmill. We'll have to tra- stop by for a anytime, tour, I guess. That's anytime. the thing. We got an invite. So uh, tell me when you're going. I'll join up with you. Yeah. <laughs> Developed by NASA. That's right. Well, last not, but not least, I'm very pleased to uh, introduce our guest to Dr. Kunjerman of Atlanta uh, Heart Specialist. So um, w- thanks for coming out today. I, I know all of you have very busy practices. So when I have specialists like yourselves come and join me, I'm very, very grateful to have you here. So thanks for, for coming. Thanks for having me. And, you know, tell me a little bit about your practice. Obviously, you know, I, when I looked into the the group before you were coming on i you know I, I see that you're a full spectrum cardiovascular practice and you do general cardiology to obviously complex interventions so you know tell us a little bit about what who needs you and 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 uh, and what you're going to do from in there all right well, thanks for having me first of all um i was going to give up a few minutes to hear about the gravity circle back to that <laughs> but uh we are um a cardiology practice we are located in uh, uh john's creek uh, coming area to tucker uh decab and hillendale and now opening up in the um, almost east atlanta in the killian hills area as well as well as in dunwoody uh, and it's a practice that's a pretty much uh, comprehensive uh, cardiac care from general cardiology uh, to arrhythmia specialists where people who need uh, um, interventions in certain arrhythmias, if you need a pacemaker, defibrillator, to stents, uh, which is my area, to um, uh, the types of vascular work, like peripheral vascular work um, in your legs, arms, um, my carotids. Um, and uh, it's a now what sets this practice apart, and you know, if, if from evaluating it, I've been with them for a little over a year. Um, it's a practice that's philosophically very focused on on service, and very focused on providing doing the right things for patients, um, and especially um, you know same day care in terms of their testing because patients. When they hear about your heart, you know, and you don't want to come to somebody and say, all right, come back for this one, come back for this thing. And this is a, a practice that goes out of their way to make sure that it's done at the right time appropriately and as quickly as possible. With the, you know, and sometimes we'll have people wait in the waiting area just to say, hey, let me get you your results right away rather than come back for another visit to results. Uh, sometimes we email and phone call them as well. And uh, so they have a reputation for that, and it's a practice that's very focused on that. 
I saw something about uh, Door to Balloon Initiative. Tell me about that. Okay, that's uh, as far as uh, my area of specialty is uh, interventional cardiology. That's uh, uh, one of the metrics that uh, hospitals, especially those with what's called a uh, percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI programs, involve. And that is somebody who comes in with a uh, with a heart attack, an MI, particularly something called an ST elevation, which is a characteristic sign on your ECG. Uh, that they these patients are handled in a very very fast manner, um, and you will see terms being used like time is muscle, meaning your heart muscle, right. and uh, so once they're in the door, it's as quickly as you can do it. Now the sort of the marker that everybody wants to meet is below under ninety minutes, but the sooner the better. And uh, so this is where hospitals are evaluated based on how quickly they can handle. It's not just, uh, uh, you know, a number. It is how much, how as a, as a team. And the, we, I think it goes to what the, the kind of the theme with today we were talking about as a team from the, ED, uh, from the EMT to the ED physicians to the people who are doing the ECGs uh, to the cath lab team to the physician doing the intervention as a team, how we've drilled down um, sort of our pro- uh, processes to do this as quickly as possible um, so that, you know, we can offer as much uh, benefit in terms of a long-term morbidity and mortality for the patients. And that is um, in there. It's a national initiative that uh, DeKalb Medical Center is part of that, and we're followed along with all the metrics that we're followed. It's very, it's, uh, very tightly followed. Do you see, you know, the... This element that we're talking about, this measurable um, piece where we're timing, how long did it take from from the time the patient got to the hospital to them being able to get an intervention in the cath lab? Um, Do you see that there's been some reduction in in terms of open-heart surgeries that would follow after that? I mean, obviously, I know that somebody can have trouble in the cath lab and end up needing to go, but do you feel like it's actually having a a reduction rate on the number of people that have to have an open surgery? Well, um, overall, there is a reduction, but not necessarily from the procedures, but it's we've gotten, we've gotten um, got better at the kind of cocktail we use prior to the hospital, uh, meaning, and this is where a general cardiologist, especially if you know you're diabetic, hypertensive, you know, a primary care refer to a, general, a good general cardiologist where they've got, you know, the co- right cocktail of medications for prevention of disease. And in that sense, there's always metrics showing that that's, or data showing that that may, may be, there may be reductions in in, uh, in people having severe severe disease, number of stents, number of MIs, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so so the, that upstream piece is more important. There's, you know, initiatives on decreasing smoking and uh, more awareness of what smoking does for you um, and so forth. Uh, so the the cardiology as a whole in the, as, is more shifted towards instead of doing a procedure after the event is preventing even the event itself. Right. And so I think we are there and there's a lot of ways of better drugs and better medications coming out in the end and so forth. And uh, hopefully, you know, someday we'll get there. Where Ta- <laughs> <laughs> Talking about drugs, you know, let's talk a minute about statins. Um, you know, when do I need one? Well, that's a good question. There's always discussion about that. Uh, you know, my, I, my personal thing is uh, I think a good trial was the Jupiter trial, which came out a few years ago. Uh, and uh, it said anybody with the high C-reactive protein should be on on these medications. But there's actually guidelines that have come out that say, hey, which kind of patients uh, do it, the older patients. Um, you know, there's a little controversy in, in the literature about the recent guidelines that came about. 
about where you know even somebody who's uh, who's a runner and and the and the skinny are getting status right. but so there the organization is itself and the people who designed that the, those guidelines are trying to figure out a better way to word that but uh, basically if you have you know other comorbidities is good rule of thumb is if you're a diabetic or a new newly diagnosed diabetic it's a simple rule of thumb that that's important to have a statin on board really I, yeah and uh, you know again um, the not just and it will cholesterol but to have the anti-inflammatory effect, the effect of uh, what we know causes um, cardiovascular disease, so to speak. So I might not even necessarily have to have a very elevated cholesterol to benefit. Not necessarily, not necessarily. And that's the that's kind of where people ask this question, hey, I am not, my cholesterol is normal, right. but my doctor put me on it anyway. Well, let me look at the rest of the stuff you're on. You're diabetic, you're high blood pressure. Uh, you know, you have a family history of uh, okay. having heart disease. You know, you're, uh, you know, you're your father had an MI at you know 45. Well, you know that's somebody who has a higher risk for it, and uh, definitely would benefit from having statins on board, mm. uh, and and so forth. And it's not just for the cholesterol I- itself, um, and it's the sort of the uh, it's. I always tell patients it's sort of like Advil on your heart. It sort of decreases the inflammatory effects on your vasculature, and sort of uh, you know prevents what we know now to be the the onset of MI sort of decreases that. Oh, that's I, I know I, I I'm a statin you know patient myself though you know it's for, it's for prevention but mine was born out of some cholesterol not crazy but I had a family history so with those two they put me on the statin so I was kind of curious um, about that it's been in the media I know Dr Oz talks about statins on yep. his show yeah. um, so when people are talking about it it's it's useful information and I certainly didn't know that you know if I'm a diabetic. Uh, and some family history that that perhaps I might need to talk to my doctor about the wisdom Absolutely. of some some uh, statins being on board. So that's certainly useful for people to know about. Um, you know, at what point do I need a you know an angiography where you're actually going to go in and and do an invasive? Well, you know, minimally invasive, but you're going to go in you know with a device and actually look. Uh, at the heart through a vascular access versus you know non non invasive stuff. Okay, but so th- as far as you know, it's an invasive procedure, and if we had to do angiograms on you know everybody, the gold standard is an angiogram to look at it. But if we had to do that on everybody that walked in with chest pain, there would be no cardiology. We'd just be doing angiograms. So uh, w- there is always non invasive methods that are uh, that are uh, uh, d- d- done to see to assess your your need for an angiogram. And so, you know, a stress test, an abnormal stress test, uh, definitely, especially if you're, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, what we call stable angina. Uh, but uh, an abnormal stress test, uh, no relief with medications, so to speak, will will definitely your cardiologist will definitely say, hey, we need to take take a better look. Somebody who's having unstable angina, uh, where even at rest you're having chest pain, so to speak, um, you know you're using aspirins, you're used for nitrates. You've had a procedure before, and your use for nitrates have gone up, um, so to speak. Uh, those patients will definitely need to get a better look and see what's going going on. And and then we've just talked about people with MI uh, with the end, and uh, we'll uh, get an angiogram as well. I see. And and with your you know interventional background, are, you know I know obviously you work on the heart, but do you also you address issues? You, you mentioned carotids, but you can do extremity <laughs> things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I've got problems like 
peripheral vascular disease in my legs. Um, you know, obviously the diabetic population is certainly mm-hmm. uh, at risk for that. So you, you're able to go down into the legs and actually open up blockages Absol- down absolutely. there. Absolutely, yeah. We do. We work. Uh, Pretty much wherever there's a vascular bed and you know if there's blockage and it's known that it's causing ischemia type symptoms uh you know or embolic events we go in and that's from, uh, definitely uh, are able to uh, correct their situation or at least uh, find out if it is correctable or if you do need to be evaluated for a bypass like a surgeon um, then send you to the right people for that and I, I, I know that there's all kinds of interesting devices that are available now. I mean, they're, they're getting to the point now where you can actually look through the, uh, through the end of the device and, and do all kinds of crazy things and tell whether you're still in the, in the vessel or not. I mean, it's pretty amazing now what they're coming out with. So I would presume that if I have the access to someone with your background, for example, to be able to see if an endovascular approach would work, it would seem to me that that would be almost more desirable than to go in and, and do just an open revascularization just gives the length of recovery time and, and all of the complications that can come with anesthetic and all, all of that. Definitely. The, you know, there's, it's always uh, the surgeons and the endovascular uh, or the cardiologists and radiologists go back and forth, and now the surgeons are also buying on board where they're doing endovascular procedures. It's, for the, from a patient perspective, it's always easier. You know, oftentimes, uh, instead of having a big incision from your, pretty much your hip to your knee or your leg, and then going for rehab and so forth, uh, you have a procedure oftentimes you know same day or the next day uh depending upon how much uh, work was involved you can go home um usually that's you know very desirable uh, you're not laid up in bed you're um, you know and the longer you're laid up in bed you know the the need for rehab and so forth and subsequent services are increased um so uh that is definitely a, a, more desirable. There are some patients, though, that do do need more um, of follow-up care. I mean, even from the cardiology perspective, we have somebody coming in with an MI, they have heart failure, uh, they're in the hospital a little bit, uh, they do need uh, where we send it to a, a facility like Allen's, and, and, and I was excited to hear about the cardiac rehab program because that's something that I know definitely um, time and time again have patients have seen a lot. You see them in clinic and they're not moving as much and you, yeah, nothing points that it is a cardiac issue and you're, you know, you're going, pulling your hair out, uh, what, you know, it's not hard. It's not um, the meds, what's going on. And then you realize they are actually deconditioned and a good rehab program. And, you know, it's nothing, it, it, it's amazing that, you know, in a month or six weeks they come back and they're smiling saying, I can do more than ever before. And, You've done nothing in terms of their medication standpoint, but just that fact that they were able to go there and get that rehab and get that somebody supervised, uh, got them through the exercise program and was able to do that. You know, patients are reassured that, you know, you've done the right thing for them. Yeah, that certainly highlights, again, what we were talking about earlier, the fact that, that yes, my doctor has a lot of uh, lot of work to do with me when I come in for these types of problems, but I also have work to do, which is kind yep. of the bummer that I actually have to do something in this process. What are you talking about? I've yeah. got to go stand on the treadmill and walk and do some exercise, that kind of stuff, change what I eat. It's, it, yeah, I think it's illuminating for, for people when they understand just how much responsibility they have in, in terms of making sure that the work that you did uh, actually sticks. Um, so, you know, I'm sure it's very useful for you to actually have access to, you know, organizations like, like this to be able to collaborate with. Do you work in, you know, you, you, you're 
their practices scattered around the, the community. Are, are there primary hospitals where you do your work? Yeah, we go to Northside, Forsyth, Emory, Johns Creek, uh, St. Joe's, um, DeKalb Medical, both of the DeKalb Medical facilities, and uh, the main campus uh, in uh, Decatur and in Hillendale. Is that based more on where I live or, or what service I need? Uh, where I live, and that, I mean, we provide the services pretty much across the, okay. all, all the hospitals, and then what services, for example, you know, the most of the, none of the hospitals, except for St. Joe's offers open heart, uh, so those patients are then, you know, transferred to St. Joe's where there's a good open heart surgery program uh, available for them. Got you. Now, I, I, from my understanding, and you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, if I've gotten revascularized, I've gone in for a procedure, whether it was endovascular, they, they went in through the through the um, the arteries and the veins to, to do their work versus, you know, or, you know, perhaps have had an open, re, you know, uh, reestablishment of my vascular flow. Um, from what I understand that if I'm going to block it off again, it typically happens within a first year or so after my, my treatment. Is that correct? Uh, there is an acute period where there is um, there you know again um, from uh, usually if it is within the few days to a month it's usually you know something technically related to the procedure itself which rarely ever happens whether it is um, you know not the right meds or the crossover from uh, IV based meds to oral meds medications um, uh, that's usually in the short term period Long-term period uh, in, the, in a year, it it can happen. It, usually after a year, the the percentages drop. Yeah. Um, and then I think sometimes uh, with the with stents and bypass, it used to be the five to ten year mark where you started seeing more. But I think uh, with all the again the cocktail of medications that we have now, uh, we're starting to see less and less of that. And I'm amazed sometimes there are stents that I see ten years out that are just look like they just got put in. That's awesome. And one of the reasons why I mentioned that you know that point was just the fact that I don't I don't know the you know every patient really understands that it's probably wise if I had a revascularization last year it's probably good to at least have some non-invasive studies following up to make sure everything's still kosher particularly if I'm a diabetic I, we, I know we run into that with our practice in wounds where you know if we haven't if we got a patient with a wound that's not healing we want to you know even though they got revascularized last year but they haven't had a study in the intervening time we want to make sure that they're still open I just was you know asking that just so that a patient might understand that hey we got to kind of keep an eye on this you know, it's not just a free pass. Exactly. My life is back to normal, and off I go. We got to keep a track of whether we're still looking good or not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the notion that uh, you know is uh, once it's been fixed, it's fixed for good. Is you know, it's not a replacing a part. It's the same parts. It's just uh, different things in there. And you know, people always have side effects. Sometimes your body reacts to it. But you know, when you stent, do a stent or a graft or anything. Your body has a way of attacking any foreign body, and basically you're doing a foreign body or, or, or a vein in a location where an artery should be. And so your body's going to react to it differently. And some people have a more flaring response to it than other people. And and it's definitely uh, definitely a follow-up it's, is very, very, very important, and, and tight follow-up is important. That's great. We've been talking with Dr. Kunjiman of Atlanta Heart Specialists, and, and you know, uh, our time is certainly going by for us here. So before we go, do you also have some, you know, we talked about some initiatives that are out there for people to be aware of, but other things that you might want to leave the community with, whether it's a physician listening or, or a patient that's 
I got a loved one that's uh, dealing with some heart issues? Uh, basically, you know, don't be reluctant to seek help, help of your doctor with all these initiatives, all the pr- uh, process that we have, and this is for patients. Uh, the most important piece is for to get you to come uh, to see us. Um, you know, if you whether it's chest pain, we get so many people where they're like, I've had chest pain for a day, but I thought it was gas or I was wondering. And then by the time you get to the hospital, it's, you know, uh, a severe procedure. Um, a serious problem. And once you get to the hospital, I think we've already addressed, asked the right questions. Um, I think a good phrase that was used was the product is the discharge, and that discharge includes how you're going to be uh, after you leave the, leave the hospital um, with, the, with, the, uh, with the rehab and getting you back on your feet and getting back to your, to your life, basically. Uh, but the hardest part is to get for us to get you to come in. And so that's, uh, if it's a chest pain, you know, ask for a cardiologist or ask to be seen by your doctor. Um, any other issues, um, you know, seek attention um, and don't be reluctant to, uh, or it's your health. And it's uh, what affects you, affects your loved ones and your family members as well. Obviously, the patients that uh, are in the community have a lot of choices when they're trying to determine who they want to go to for their care and in and, and looking into to Atlanta Heart Specialists. I, I, I noticed on the website that, that you talk about the fact that all of your physicians are board certified. I think those things are important. I don't know that the patients necessarily understand that that has some value that you're having to continue and you're um, ongoing education all the time and, and uh, obviously looking at your bio you did three fellowships on top of residency so you were a student uh, you, were, you, were, you were practically an old man before you got to go out and actually yes. go to work so <laughs> yeah. when, when we land in your care then obviously you're going to be somebody that doesn't just do this I mean you, you had uh, obviously a long series of, of training efforts before you, you know, got into the community to, to provide your care so obviously it's going to be a good place for somebody to land if they need to take care of some cardiovascular issues so I want to say thanks again for coming out to you tell the folks what your, your website is and it's, any other social media that you may have it's atlantaheartspecialist.com and uh, you know, you know, feel free to contact us, email so we are checked every day and uh, uh, responded to so uh, look forward to it from you. For our listeners, uh, certainly if you're following uh, Top Docs and our show and our social media, we link up with all of our guests so that they can find you easily. So either way, they'll be able to link up with you. And obviously, Gwinnett Medical Center's website would be a great place to be able to learn more about the hospital-based practice that you have. Um, and, and, and I'm sure they're also going to be on Facebook and Twitter as well so they can link up and follow. And I'll be doing the same thing with my social media. And I know Salud's got a website that's in works. We just opened the doors, so we're just kind of getting things fired up. But it's going to be Salud, S-A-L-U-D-E dot com. And uh, I presume there will be some social media that will follow along with that as well. And we'll be sure that as those things get going, um, we'll be tying into them as well. Uh, for the listeners out there, if you're not already linked up with the Top Docs uh, radio show on the, the Internet, you can certainly uh, do so at uh, Twitter at Top Docs on BRX, obviously Facebook.com slash Top Docs on BRX. Um, we love for our, our, our listeners to tweet us questions, uh, whether it's during the show or after, because we will get with our guests and make sure we get uh, answers to those for you. Also, for patients who are dealing with wounds that aren't healing, or if you're a patient who's dealing with some late effects of radiation that haven't been getting better, please link up with our Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia website. That one is hbomdga.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at HBOMDGA. So thank you all for making us a part of your day-to-day from the listening audience. And then, again, uh, I'm very grateful for our guest today, 
Uh, all of our physician specialists who join us here are from busy practices. I've, I've been able to speak with some of the top doctors in the community, which has been outstanding for me, and uh, to be able to introduce them to the community. So thank you all very much for making time to be here, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to have you back. As once, you, once we get going down the road, I'm sure there will be more things to talk about, Dr. Wong, and uh, we'll you know, be able to feature some more of your uh, folks from your other practices as well. Um, thank you all very much. We'll see you all next week at Tuesday, same time, same place. 